Hello, everyone, and welcome to Straight from the Shoulder, the podcast where we strive to analyze geopolitical events through the apolitical lens of intelligence officers. I'm Julia Stone, Senior Director at the Arkin Group, and for the past 15 years, I've worked in both public and private sector intelligence. I'm here with spy master Jack Devine, former acting deputy director of operations at the CIA and the founder and president of the Arkin Group. This week, we're going to be discussing the parallels between what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in Israel, and how both of these conflicts have the ability to impact our security as Americans and more generally impact global stability. We're also going to be talking about the role that intelligence can play in preventing conflicts and how intelligence failures can result in widespread instability and violence across the world. Well, Jack, I know that you've been carefully tracking the battle between Ukraine and Russia ever since Russia invaded Ukraine almost two years ago, and that you've been following this region for a lot longer. So I'm curious to hear your take on what this war is really about. Is this just about resources or a land grab? What's going on here? Well, I think people need to understand the core of the issue, which is uh, Putin has had designs on Ukraine. He is not unique. This is a longstanding desire by Russia through history. But he has acted upon his uh, on this wish. And when I was out in Ukraine in 2018, it was clear that his aggression was being taken very seriously. He had already gone into the Crimea. Mm-hmm. And and had uh, started a lower level battle, but this was a full fledged right. invasion. So it's an invasion of Europe. It's an invasion of our allies. It's in your face policy. So yes, we want to defend and be helpful in defending and supporting uh, Ukraine's defense. But it's also about our own well being. I mean, if he takes Ukraine, he becomes a totally different and more important power. And, you know, we probably should also talk about what this means in the bigger scheme of things, besides just uh, Russia's aggression in in this. That leads me uh, into my next question, actually. I think that one of the questions that many of us have at this moment, particularly as President Biden is meeting resistance to his emergency spending bill, it includes over $60 billion for Ukraine, is what would you say to people in the United States who are arguing against that bill because they don't think enough money and enough legislative language has been built in around protecting our own borders, around our own southern border. What would you say to these people? Well, I think we're in political gymnastics, but there's the old adage that, you know, you should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time if you're if you're <laughs> a world power. So I don't I don't understand why one can't be done without uh, doing the other. Now, that's up to the politicians to figure out how to do it. But it's a, it's really a ruse, a political ruse. What we need to look mm-hmm. at is our strategic position. And I wrote to this back in May. And that is, it's not just Russia. It's about Russia, uh, Iran, China, and their allies and friends, anti-democratic forces, and our our allies and friends, NATO, Israel, and so many other countries. And it's really a struggle about what type of world we're having. It's much bigger. And the mm-hmm. way you weaken that uh, balance is by putting the maximum pressure on Russia. And that's why Ukraine is so important. So in that same bill that was initially rejected by the Senate, there was also $14 billion allocated for Israel. Do you see parallels between what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in Israel? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, what you have here are anti-democratic forces. This is my point. I mean, Hamas can only be looked at as a terrorist organization. They tried a military attack against Israel. It's it's smaller well, in scale, but brutal. But so is, I mean, Putin is extremely inhumane, and so is Hamas. And they're allies of ours. They're a democratic force in the region of long standing. Uh, we have obligations to be supportive of them, and we're against terrorism anywhere and have been for years. So to me, the two are joined, but it's joined again in this bigger scheme of things I'm talking about, that which side are you on? It's, it is, as a cold warrior, what you're seeing once again is that demarcation between sort of anti-democratic isms, if you will, and democratic isms. In other words, there's a view of the world, and this is a struggle about that. It's not about just who holds on to the Crimea or, uh, you know, how do you, can you uh, conquest uh, Gaza? There's there's a bigger, long-standing issue here that needs to be resolved, and our national security depends on it. Well, what would you, what do you say about the argument, and I've seen this in a lot of um, social media and have heard it in different ways, the argument that Hamas and Palestinians in Gaza are being attacked the same way that Ukraine is being attacked. I mean, the Israeli airstrikes have decimated parts of Gaza. Well, let, what would you say? Be, what would you, yeah, what would you say to people who are using that well, argument and framing it in the opposite let's, way? Let's be, let's be clear. When someone declares war on you, you have to respond with full force. I mean, who calibrates? Where in history do we get this idea that you calibrate your attack when you've been you've been hit head on? Now, all war should be fought in terms of minimizing uh, civilian casualties, but that doesn't mean you have a ceasefire or you end the war because of that. I mean, look at history; it's just replete with you know uh, terrible struggles. The whole purpose of the war is to bring about peace, so you have to subjugate the enemy and. From that point forth, then you can talk about negotiations. There's no, there's no middle road on this. And I talked about this months ago, or rather when it first started. There can't be a velvet hand. You you must be as conscious as you conscientious as you can in protecting human life of all sorts, and, and particularly the innocent. But in this, there, I, I have trouble understanding why it isn't obvious to everybody that Hamas must be put down. Now this can mm-hmm. all end. If Hamas does what most armies do when they're defeated, and that's they surrender, you know, so this or could all be put to knees. As a release the as a hostages and surrender, release the hostages and surrender. Cut a deal for yourself so that maybe you get life in prison rather than the gallows. But at this point, when you're a losing army, you then have an obligation to look at your own civilians and the cost and your own army. I mean. It certainly wasn't fun for the Confederate Army to go to Appomattox. It wasn't fun for the Japanese to get on the ship with MacArthur and sign uh, sign a peace treaty. But that's how wars end. It doesn't end with series of ceasefires and and mm-hmm. calibrated attacks. It only draws out the the uh, war, and it only makes it bloodier in the long term. The quicker this could have been capped mm. off, the better, and the sooner well, the Hamas is liquidated, the better. I think that's one of the things that we've we've seen with Ukraine as well, right? Is that people, many, rightfully so, perhaps initially, have been hesitant to arm Ukraine to the extent that 
perhaps the Ukrainians, you know, really needed to make an impact and a dent on Russia in those first few months or even the first year. And that every time it was like, well, what's Putin? Everyone's afraid of that Putin's going to respond, you know, with greater force or with, God forbid, some sort of nuclear <laughs> retaliation. And we really haven't seen that. I don't um, mean to, I don't. And I mean to giggle when you say use greater force. I mean, he gave it everything he had, and now he's trying to add more to it. That was not a like attempt to walk to have a sweet walkthrough. I mean, he put a 180,000 man army on the border and marched it in, tried to march it into Ukraine. So, and look how faulty people have forgotten just how what a terrible performance he did. The, the Ukrainians have regained half of the territory. Uh, and it's the question of winning. Did anybody really believe Ukraine was going to drive the Russian army into Moscow? I mean, I certainly did. I thought if they held them off, that was a victory, a serious victory. And mm-hmm. I'm still saying that. We we put the bar so high for our allies. It's uh, Sometimes we're not very realistic. I agree with you that we should have shown more strength when he invaded in 2014, immediately, instead of sending mm-hmm. blankets, there should have been the type of support. I thought the Biden administration got off to a really good start in trying to support it. But there is a, a difficulty in getting the logistic train uh, developed. But I'm now um, really concerned about our wobbly needs here in America. And we need to, we need to buckle up you, on this. And what, how do our allies look at us? We start something and we can't finish. And how do our fight. enemies look at us? Our well, adversaries me. look at us? Yeah, excuse me. You're absolutely right there. I should have started with that. So are we capable of supporting both Ukraine and Israel in these ongoing, potentially drawn-out conflicts at the same time? Look, um, anyone that's been tracking the history of military policy in our country would know that our entire um, program is devoted to defending a war on two fronts. I mean, an Asian war and a European war simultaneously. In the case of both Israel and Ukraine, we do not have any combat troops on the ground. It's more like what I was doing in Afghanistan in the old days, supporting the Mujahideen. So, mm-hmm. yes, we can do it. Now, is there when we start talking budgetary matters, uh, I'd like to be able to sit down in Congress and go over the whole budget with them, if God were permitted, because there's a lot of things that are wasteful in it. And, you know, but when we try and match off the border and whether we can do both, of course we can do them. We have to want to, we have to have a national consensus and our leaders have to make and make clear why we're doing it. So yes, we're certainly within our capabilities. Okay. Well, what do you think about um, the generational divide in terms of support for these war efforts? I think one of the reasons why I've been so disarmed um, by what happened in Israel and the, the, the lack of full-throated support for Israel's position. And while we are not, at, why we have wobbly knees now about Ukraine is because there is a generation. I think anybody, and I don't want to pick it, I was about to pick an age and then alienate half the population. But there are people that went through world, and I wasn't, I didn't go through World War II, trust me. But, you know, I was very much involved in the Cold War. And I saw how how Russia behaves and China and and the war and struggle and the bloodshed that came from that and uh, our own national security. And today, there are so many people that when you start looking back, they haven't they haven't looked at that. So to them, you know, Ukraine is just another European country. Can't find Gaza on a map, you know. So they also haven't lived or experienced a lot of life in places like that. 
And I, is, I agree with that as well, uh, Julie. But what I'm saying is yeah. I have to remind myself, you know, when I get on my high horse that you have to, Jack, if you're going to talk, you have to bring over the young people because they're just saying, well, why, Jack? And, you know, you have to say, well, let's go back and do some uh, History 101 with you. And I don't want to do it on this program. We can take snippets of it. So I think there is a divide, like that, but it's yeah. partly life experience. And I think the obligation is as much on us as them to make sure they understand what's really at stake and walk them through uh, through the history lesson here. This is this is not new. This we're we're seeing this reshape, but it's it's it has the makings of a bipolar confrontation. So we have to be very mindful of what we're getting getting into. Walking away from this is not going to help. It's going to mean that we're going to get entangled in a much more complicated and, and dangerous world if we step back and say, well, let the chips fall where they may and we'll we'll somehow fix the border. Go fix the border anyway. Don't let that stand in the way. Get it fixed. I'm all for that. Well, one thing I've been thinking a lot about um, ever since the Hamas invasion, regardless of how, how this war plays out or what it what it ultimately prevents, is what is the role of intelligence in containing that initial widespread violence that leads to these kind of much larger um, conflicts? I know that everybody thinks that this is a political, you know, peacekeeping is a political or diplomatic issue, but good intelligence can prevent a massive war from exploding and becoming amplified, and it can really limit the scale of any violence or damage. So in you know, in addition to the budget and allocating money and, and support for these allies, Ukraine and Israel, um, what, what's the role of intelligence in maintaining peace? And, and how did we fail? Did we fail Israel in this uh, with Hamas's initial attack? Well, you have a couple questions there, Julie. You're a tough, tough <laughs> I have many interview. questions. <laughs> you require Not very me many to, answers. You're going to require me to come back and go through them one at a time. Okay, uh, well, I'll ask you the no, first no, one. No. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I can do it, but go ahead. Let's just take it in bite size. Pieces. We can start with the first question, which is, uh, was it an, an intelligence failure? Was it a U.S. intelligence failure? And why do you think that Hamas was able to do this in the first place? So I would draw all of my listeners to our listeners. Uh, they like you better than me, I think. But I think um, I, I think I would draw attention to an op-ed that I'm very pleased with. I'm not always happy with them, <laughs> but... It was one basically that why 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 was there a failure? And there are two aspects of it. One is the straight intelligence era that I've seen over and over again in my career. And when I look back over every failure, it was conventional wisdom. This can't happen because that can't happen because. And you know, the I think the, in the case of the Israelis, they were of the belief that they had a relationship now with Hamas that they understood, and it wasn't dangerous. The whole world was saying the same thing. So, you know, it was conventional or that Putin is, you know, you look in his eyes and you can see he's a good guy. Well, I I, okay. I kind of doubt anyone's going to say that now. So it's conventional wisdom. And how do you avoid um, a world in which technology is so important? And I endorse it to the fullest, right? You want to press AI as much as you can. But what is AI in a way is conventional wisdom. It's what everybody says about everything and you get it and you synthesize it. And it's a great value. But you have to challenge conventional wisdom. You have to test it. How do you do that? And that was the theme of the article, which is human sources. They've been around a long time and we've degraded the value of them. 
And when I look at Israel, I was surprised to see that they didn't have that covered the way I would have thought. Uh, they talk about the 40-page report, but that was a technical report. They didn't get a second report, a third report. They were missing human sources. There was no way, in my judgment, that less than 200 people knew that there's something eminent was about to happen and there was going to be vicious and a lot of moving pieces. That they didn't plug into that uh, is startling. On the U.S. side, my friends aren't going to like this, but, you know, we may not have, we might have deferred to Israeli on covering this, but we certainly should not be deferring to anybody on covering Iran. Why we couldn't answer the immediate question whether Iran was involved or not uh, seems to point in the direction that our technical uh, coverage is good, but we didn't know the answer to that question. So I'm making a strong pitch. And I think I, I actually think it's well beyond me that the world, both in the public and private sector also, are now questioning the invincibility of technical coverage and starting to ask themselves serious questions about human. Let me add one last thing that was stunning to me it was uh, after 9-11. And I think both, uh, I, I think the U.S. regrets having done this at the U.N., you know, playing a tape of two people saying that, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein had access to nuclear weapons and in this vial. In other words, sometimes you get sucked in by your information. And when you don't have good sources, you make bad judgments. And it goes to your key point. Why do you want intelligence? You walk to CIA on the wall, it says you should know the truth and it sets you free. If you know if you know what's happening, if you know what Putin's intentions are, if you know what Hamas's intentions are, you have a better chance of preventing war. And then when the war starts, you have a better chance of punching back. And we keep relearning this lesson, sadly. Well, thank you, Jack. I look forward to discussing how intelligence can be improved and examples we've seen where we've um, done a great job and around the world, who's good at this game and who can we learn from and who who should we be in cahoots with. But for now, I'm going to leave it at that and hope everybody has a fantastic week and take good care. This episode of Straight from the Shoulder has been produced by Jen Scorivote.